This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. As the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference of the Parties in Glasgow draws to a close amidst debate about how much it has actually achieved, researchers such as Dr Melissa Jackson are solving intractable climate change dilemmas on the front line. Melissa Jackson is a research fellow with Griffith University's Climate Action Beacon, recognising her novel interdisciplinary approach to water and energy management, particularly in remote communities such as the islands of the Torres Strait. On the Gender Card today, she explains how she's using innovative technologies such as water meters to empower local communities as they face increasing water supply limitations, exacerbated by the impact of climate change. Melissa has just returned from her latest visit to the Torres Strait and her interviews with locals about the impact of climate change form a key part of this podcast and her pioneering model of community-based engagement. Part of her success was discovering how to give women in these isolated communities more of a voice in decision making, to help the community come up with successful strategies for extreme weather events and increasingly unpredictable rainfall. My name's Melissa Jackson and I'm a research fellow with the Climate Action Beacon. Melissa, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Gender Card. Thanks for having me, Nance. Great to be here. Melissa, can you tell us about you've just returned from a, a trip to the Torres Strait. What were you doing up there? Yeah, my research over the past five or six years has focused on looking at community-based collaboration and co-design for water and energy management. And that really includes um, participatory approaches, working with the communities to look at how we can make the water system sustainable over the long term. So this last visit uh, was looking at the training aspects, working with the Queensland Tropical Public Health Unit and uh, the Torres Strait Island Regional Council water and wastewater management team and they were training up all their water officers from across the 15 islands so myself and my colleague associate professor Cara Beal were up there to help with the community engagement training. And while you were there you also did some interviews with people in the Torres Strait uh, both for your research and luckily for us on the podcast we can hear these amazing voices from such a remote area. Can you tell us about some of the people that you met and and, uh, what you discussed? We were also up there to launch a a book which my colleague Cara had been working on for quite quite a while with a couple of the artists from Hammond Island uh, looking at teaching kids how to be water-saving superheroes as well. So we did a little book launch at the school. So the the people I chatted to there were some of the the managers and the officers who look after water in in those communities um, and a couple of the locals as well who are involved. Just generally I wanted to hear from them about 
their experiences with water. Regina has read a little bit of the book for us. Can you tell us a bit about her? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Regina Turner and her husband Edwin Turner were the artists who did the illustrations for this amazing book called Auntie Mutty, the Water Saving Superhero. Auntie Mutty is a, is a turtle and she's teaching Kura, the crocodile, uh, who's a little kid, about how to be more water-wise. Uh, so it's just a little a story, short story, that really illustrates some of the, the traditional cultural connections with water that Torres Strait Islanders have and can be taught to kids at a, at a young age, primary school level. So Regina was, she's from Panipan Design, so they're really looking at trying to promote the the artistic and, and and cultural representations of art in the Torres Strait, and she was there reading that to the kids at at the Porama School um, as as we did the book launch. So we had a chat as well about her experiences with water and how she got involved in the project to do this book. And we'll listen to a little bit of Regina now that you kindly take for us reading this book. It's incredible to hear from such a remote place on the podcast. Thanks so much for doing this. You could be a superhero too. To join the club, this is what you need to do. Kura, when you use your loo, just a quick flush to save water, this is the best thing to do. Kura, while you're giving your teeth a scrub, remember to turn the tap off and be part of the Water Saving Superhero Club. Melissa, you spoke to Regina as well, really, about the significance of, of this book and, and the significance, really, of, of this research and this interesting time for the Torres Strait. Yeah, so really water is such a key issue across Australia in the context of, of climate change. It's one of the biggest issues uh, and we're really facing unprecedented challenges going forward. Uh, Australia in particular being one of the driest continents on earth has some serious freshwater challenges as we know. My research is focusing on the water supply end so really you know how we use that amongst the the household uh, for domestic uses. They call that uh, wash water and sanitation hygiene and we've been working to look at how we can make the, the system sustainable in terms of the supply and the demand and resilience of those systems to these challenges around climate change. So I was asking Regina about her experiences with water as well. And I guess there's a lot of traditional knowledge as well in our um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities with very, very long histories about relationships with water as well. And and Regina was talking about in the book, um, you know, there's a couple of characters, there's there's an eel and a, a goanna, and the eel really comes from that history that they were an indicator of sorts about how healthy the water holes were. So when there were lots of eels in the water holes, that meant they were healthy. And when they started disappearing or it was getting really sort of dry, then people would know that the, the water holes weren't, weren't healthy as well. So Auntie Mati or Ama Mati, we would say, she's actually the turtle. She wears her nice island dress and has her nice frangipani in her hair. Auntie Mati is the superhero. She helps... Kura, the croc, who's a child, giving him some water-saving tips. Yeah. A few years ago, we first saw the witness, the bleaching of the coral because of the temperature in the water was really hot. We knew it was hot, but having to see something like that that we've never seen before and 
the you know it just you hear about climate change all the time the seasons are changing you know normally the flowering of the mango trees that would be october november you know i remember as a kid we used to swim salt water and eat mangoes and you know so now we're seeing that the mangoes are actually blooming a lot quick earlier in august september that's one of the those are the changes that we've seen um in terms of the drought and you know just the change in weather and it is scary this year it's been so rough we've never seen 40 knot winds or 45 knot winds in all the years that I've lived over at Hammond Mm -hmm. so that was just something totally we hadn't seen before. That kind of knowledge and those indicators we can really start to tap into those those stories that have been passed down from generation to generation about connecting with with water and um, I guess understanding that it's not all about measurement and and monitoring from a western perspective but that people really engage with with that stewardship and, and and heritage around water and other resources as well. And one of uh, the people that you spoke to uh, was Tony. I met Tony at uh, at the council there. She's an admin officer who looks after the the, the building and the, the tradies and the construction guys at, through the council. And she was willing to have a chat with me about her experiences with water. She'd lived on Hammond Island as well, which is one of the inner islands. Uh, she'd also moved back to Parama where her, her family lived. So I was asking her about impacts of climate change and experiences with water and water restrictions. It's actually scary once we don't have any water, but we actually use the town water. So the tank usually finishes very fast. Like we've always been out of water and it usually takes a day to um, get the, the tank filled up. So they will um, actually have to turn on one of the valves to get our tanks filled up. What an amazing time to be at the Torres Strait, I think even internationally as well, and for your research. Also, we've got the the climate action beacon that that you're involved in. Also, of course, what's happening with the G20. It does seem to be the little moment in the sun to look at these effects, doesn't it? That's right. It, It really is building momentum. So it was quite ironic to be up there in the Torres Strait talking to people about how their beaches are, are washing away and they're losing their playgrounds for their kids uh, while the UN Conference of the Parties, COP12 in Glasgow, was kicking off and our Prime Minister uh, was announcing uh, quite a very limited outlook on how we could tackle climate change and reduce emissions in Australia. So it, the people up in the Torres Strait are really feeling it. We have what's known as the Torres Strait 8 who are Uh, Some of the communities, uh, members that I've worked with previously who are taking the Australian government to court on climate action. And there's a huge delegation of Pacific Islanders over in in Glasgow at the moment, um, I guess, really trying to push for the reality of what they're already facing. I mean, this is not not in the future. Uh, This is happening now. We're seeing all sorts of impacts on, uh, I guess, saltwater incursion into into water tables. We're seeing um, vast tracts of mangroves that have died, the the coral bleaching, uh, which is reducing the the food sources uh, for for Indigenous people all around the world. Um, But in Australia and in the Torres Strait, they're very dependent on marine resources for for their food. 
So it's it's really a powerful time. And I guess my research at the moment, my role is a, a research fellow with the Griffith Uni Climate Action Beacon. And that's an initiative that has just kicked off. This is the first year it's been around. Um, it's, a, it's a $5 million commitment by Griffith University to really address this issue through interdisciplinary research, through partnerships with, with other research institutions, but with civil society, with government and communities as well. So it's a, it's a really amazing program to be a part of and we're really excited about where this is where this is going because we think there's a, a huge amount of opportunity here to bridge that gap with around evidence-based knowledge and scientific research and and action so it's really focused on climate action now there's not really a question whether or not this is happening anymore um, you know denial is is a thing of the past in in my mind and we we just really have to move on and look at how we can address this significant challenge and how did you come into that role how does this project really fit into that that mission to promote climate action yeah so my my background is uh, I've got some background in government and industry and consulting uh, and then I moved into academia and recently completed my doctoral thesis here at, at Griffith and I was working with uh, Associate Professor Cara Beale on remote community water and energy. So my interest in this space, I, I guess from a personal perspective, I'd travelled a lot, you know, as, as a youth growing up in Tasmania, I'd heard all these amazing stories about all these places that I could visit, travelled a lot and saw a lot of things, a lot of challenges around poverty and social justice and uh, health and well-being. And I guess that raises the question of, of how we're really doing things at home. So for me, as I started to become more aware of, I guess, the way that we've treated Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in this land, I really wanted to find out more and see how I could connect with that. I mean, 60 to 80,000 years of knowledge uh, with living cultures is just such an incredible resource that I just don't think that we've tapped into on, on nearly any level that it needs to be tapped into. So for me, it was a great learning opportunity. And, and although I felt a little bit out of my depth, I really wanted to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and see not only if we could improve, uh, I guess, how these systems are working for them, because we know that there's still a huge gap between Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians in terms of health, in terms of income, household income, in terms of incarceration rates, uh, suicide, all of those sorts of things. So I really wanted to turn my background experience in water, energy, social change uh, into something more locally. Interesting too that uh, your background in Tasmania because in so many ways Tasmania is really at the, f- the forefront of climate change too. I mean when you think of the hole in the ozone layer and how that's affecting Tasmania and all, it's really not actually that far of a stretch strangely to go from Tasmania to the extremes of the continent to the Torres Strait. I know that's right. And and I guess, I mean, there's a connection there as well in terms of Tasmania has always been quite a place of extremes, not only in terms of the environment, but also with conflicts between uh, industry. Um, you know, it's a low socioeconomic area compared to many parts of Australia and, and jobs over environment has always been a key theme. And uh, I guess 
you know, a lot of it has been around forestry and wood chipping and those sorts of things. But we're seeing these same sorts of issues now all the time in terms of climate change. We've got uh, mining communities which will need to transition. We've got challenges around, um, I guess, sea level rise and how communities might need to think about relocating, this kind of managed retreat question. So for me, it's not really much of a stretch to to start looking in, in other areas and other island communities as well, because you have limited resources to work with. But at the same time, there's often a very strong sense of community, which makes them amazing test beds for really looking at how far we can push sustainability actions and, and, and that resilience component, because there's a lot of strong social capital that you can tap into. And once change is kind of worked in with the community, it can happen really quickly in small island communities. And internationally, again, I think of the, the Torres Strait 8 and the, that, that worldwide focus that that, that, that pivotal case has brought to, to what they've been saying for many years. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the Torres Strait is, um, have often been leaders in, in this space in, in challenging kind of the, the status quo with government, obviously, with Eddie Mabo being a, a huge leader in that area and setting the precedent for, for native title. But I guess it's a desperate situation for many. And, and one of the things that I'd really like to do through my work is help to do that translation and that education and bring awareness to actually the challenges that are happening in remote communities. I mean, water is a a key one that many people can connect to because for us, uh, it's often an invisible thing. We just turn the tap on and there's the water. Off we go. We have a shower. We have our drink, put the kettle on. For many working from home, without water at home, you would be struggling. But there are many communities across Australia that don't have that um, access to the same, same levels of water. Uh, and in the Torres Strait, many of the communities have been on water restrictions, which actually means that their water is switched off for up to 15 hours a day. So they'll have it on for a couple of hours in the morning. It gets switched off. This is to the whole island. It turns on again at lunchtime, gets switched off, turns on again in the evening and some of these communities have been living like this for years and years and years and I guess it's just something that I don't think people are aware of. I agree I don't think many people would even be aware that that it's become that that difficult to to conserve water in in the Torres Strait that they've had to turn it off to communities in that way. That's right. And I think, you know, one of my interviewees is Mark David, who's the operations manager for water for the Torres Strait Island Regional Council. And, you know, he talks about this this huge suite of challenges that they face in managing water. They're they're a small council, but they are managing uh, multiple community water systems, which often in urban areas have huge amounts of resources to to do this. And they have a small team doing this. First of all, we're really remote in terms of getting equipment and parts. Um, it takes a while. We've got a weekly barge that comes, so um, we need to really prepare uh, up front in order to get parts in on time. We have a, a small capacity, holding capacity water, where we need to manage every bit that's in there. And it's, it's challenging, you know, when you 
working around all infrastructures as well. So saying that it's, you know, mostly um, contributing to all the leaks that we're having. Um, climate, climate change has, has, has a big effect as well, where the rain seasons aren't there as, as per normal as we see. But in the last couple of years, it sort of looked promising where we've had a good monsoon. The rainfall is, is less uh, frequent, uh, less reliable, and uh, they have a lot of desal plants, desalination plants, where they they suck in the, the seawater, that converts it to fresh water, and then they pump that through the community as a supplement to get them through the dry season. So there, there's lots of these challenges there. Desalination is extremely energy intensive as well. And most of the communities that use that are using diesel generation. So they have these big uh, diesel generation systems, three or four generators that will run in a community continually, just 24-7, quite noisy as well. <laughs> but, you know, there's an opportunity there for not only saving water and conserving that but saving energy and millions of dollars in terms of how much it costs to supply that water to the communities as well by really working with the communities to think about where the water comes from and how it can be saved and managed and and one of the projects that we have been doing in my research is we trialed some very high resolution smart water meters and energy meters so we we're using this technology combined with a community-based approach for education outreach and feedback to look at uh, how we could really maximise the, the water system, optimise it. Uh, and we found that there were savings of up to 40% in some of the communities uh, just in, a, in the short term with, with taking this approach because we could really target the feedback to the, the household users as well. But one of the exciting things that came out of that, which we've been talking to the, the council up north in, in the past week, is that from that trial project that we did, they were able to roll out smart meters across the communities. And um, we, we hear that on one of the islands that had a real problem, uh, Murray Island, that for the first time in about 20 years, they've been able to put their water back on 24-7 because... Um, combined with the water management process and the, and the smart metering, which allows them to kind of address leaks uh, very quickly, they can now turn the water on so the community can use it 24 hours a day. Oh, and that's a great success story. It really, I mean, it's when you're kind of working up there and you're you're trying your best, but you're not quite sure, <laughs> you know, whether it's going to have any impact because some of these issues are so intractable that's really encouraging for us to continue on in this space as well. And I think yeah. this points to a really interesting aspect of your research, Melissa, as well, about that transdisciplinary perspective. I mean, you've explained it in a sense, but it's not just an engineering solution that's going to fix this. It's not just the social sciences perspective. We need to get all of that. How do you integrate all that yourself as a researcher? <laughs> that's right. Look, it's it's a really interesting area for me, I guess, at the heart of transdisciplinary research is, is the problem, is what is the problem, what is the research question. It's usually real-world problems that drive what methods we use and what approaches and which sorts of disciplines and different skill sets come into it. So it's really challenging, but I think it is 
just an area that we have to go into more and more. We need to build up skills amongst researchers to be able to know how to collaborate with community, like meaningfully collaborate, how to collaborate with engineers and with qualitative researchers, with policy makers, and to find out what the different perspectives are because these solutions are highly complex well the problems and the solutions are highly complex and they're ever-changing and without uh, I guess dialogue as a core means of going forward we're not actually going to be able to find solutions that fit the problem and often what happens is that the the solution such as what happens regularly with technical or infrastructure solutions that don't really bring in the social aspects. They're short-lived, um, they, they don't succeed, you see technologies that don't fit what the community wants um, or there's some reason that they just don't work at all, <laughs> that if the community had been consulted, for example, they might have been able to find that out in advance. So it to takes me, longer to get to, to the solutions but it's more effective. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it is, it is quite a skill set as well. I think skills needed around being able to listen very deeply, to to understand that there are multiple and often conflicting perspectives and and how we kind of navigate that space is probably, for me, one of the biggest challenges that we will face trying to tackle these biodiversity and climate change and sustainability issues. And I, I think that my role in the climate action Beacon, which I'm still kind of working through, I've only been there a few months, is really exciting in that space to be able to understand what are these skill sets and and how can we communicate that and and bring that into being. So often it's great uh, grounded in systems thinking, so really looking at things relationally and um, network perspective. So all things are connected. If you pull one part of the string, you know, another part over here, is, is going to get moved. So what does that look like and how do you bring that together? So there's a real opportunity for researchers who want to have impact and, and to make a difference, I think, to start thinking about working in transdisciplinary spaces and, and moving beyond just their, their own sort of knowledge base. And, and it requires a lot of questioning of yourself all the time, <laughs> which is challenging for a lot of people. So always asking, you know, what's, what's my goal here? particularly when you're working with marginalised communities or, or people who are vulnerable or at risk. I'm in a privileged position, so how can I make sure that what I'm doing here is is helping and not hindering or, or doing any damage? And that, for me, again, it's really about building relationships with, with the people that you're researching with and, and helping to bridge those gaps in knowledge. And essentially by doing that, by that deep listening, by building relationships, hopefully we're avoiding the colonisation process happening again, essentially, because you're including in a meaningful way the thousands of years of knowledge that you mentioned of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Absolutely. And it's it's quite challenging as well because it's not only, for example, the, the water industry or the energy industry or other sectors, government, but Academia as well is uh, extremely colonising <laughs> approach. It's, it's often gone out and, and viewed Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people or other Indigenous people as other and, and observed them and taken the knowledge and 
you know, pumped out some papers. And I, I think there's a lot of research around on decolonizing methodologies, which, you know, very much align with kind of the social social justice aspects that this podcast is aligned with. Rather than being the observer, it's far more participatory by the sound of it, this process now. Yeah, that, that's right. I, I think it has to be really. We need to always keep in mind there's, there's amazing resources on this now as well and, and led by, for example, Griffith University's Indigenous Research Unit has really got some great guidance there, as do many universities now, on what it means to actually do research that is in partnership and collaboration with, with Indigenous people as well. And, and I guess the, you know, some of the... That decolonizing approach is also considering other marginalized groups as well. And we know that it impacts women differently to men as well with research and, and having access to that. So I'm really interested in, in that component as well. And I imagine there's gender politics involved in this as well, Melissa, that that we'd like to explore. Just interesting how much can women or do they participate in this process in the Torres Strait? There are some cultural aspects at play here, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. And and look, my research hasn't been focusing on that, but I, I was talking to a few of uh, my interviewees up at Parama last week and asking them about what, what it's like to be a, a woman engaging with, with some of these water issues as well. And it brings up some very interesting cultural norms and questions, but also, I guess, gender roles more, more broadly. And we'll probably hear from um, a, a couple of the women there. So there's only out of the different water officers and engineering office, officers, there's only two women across the Torres Strait Island Regional Council in that role. And I interviewed one of them, Vera, um, who's a Fijian woman who's been in Australia for many, many years. And she was talking about her experience. And you have to train very carefully on what you do being a woman and you must always put your best ability to be just as good as what you can be and learn as much as you can but you get negatives but that's a lot of positive comes out of it that's a lot of people will help you out if you are positive in things you do and it's very challenging but it's the best step for us to do. We have to cover everything, of course, because sometimes us female are very aware of certain things. When you're working, you always... Where boys sometimes, they too hurry up in things. So really, she's pioneering in that space, but she wasn't even quite aware of of how pioneering she is and, and all the background structures that actually keep <laughs> keep women out of those roles. They're just very strong women and there's, there's a lot of really amazing leaders in that space, but there's also conflicting messages that come through too about what women can do and what roles they are. So we were talking about how there's an opportunity now that she is in that role to be seen by younger girls and women to actually look at that as an option for the future. It's not just office or admin work, but there could be a whole connection to going off to do further study. From my perspective, a really interested in getting more women into, into STEM projects, into science, technology, engineering, maths, those sorts of programs, because I think women have a very unique outlook on things. They, they often 
uh, are naturally very considered in how they can see the connections between things. And that's, I think that's really important in this kind of ecological sort of relational network space that we need to move into, into the future. I think there was one more woman that you interviewed as well while you were at the Torres Strait, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Felicia Pearson as well, uh, who was also a Parama resident council officer as well. I was asking her about her experiences with water and with climate change and, and she was also giving me some of her views on how we could encourage uh, young girls and women to to get more involved in, in water. When we, like growing up on island, when we grow up we, we get taught to be ladylike and we have to do the woman job and all that. So I guess that's why there's not much um, females doing engineering because that's like kind of a job where it's outdoorsy and very um, active. And I think it's, I think that's why not much um, female doing the job. But I guess like now that times kind of change um, and if more younger people are exposed to the different career options they have, um, I guess that would be something that will help them. Thank you so much for bringing back these beautiful voices from the Torres Strait. I think to hear from the people on the ground, as we've been discussing, to hear from the people affected by these decisions and the governance of these really complicated matters. It's so powerful, isn't it? And having those that, that community perspective, those voices, has a big impact in your research as well? Absolutely. For me, it's probably the most uh, interesting and fun part of my research is just actually being able to speak with people and hear their stories and, and their perspectives. And, and, you know, particularly of women as well, who uh, often when research is conducted in these communities, they go through the prescribed bodies corporate or the the official roles um, you ask for permission to go to the communities uh, and often that does flow through the channels of, of the senior males in the communities as well uh, and they can often be very confident in their leadership roles and, and talking to I guess government agencies and other external people coming in whereas women are tend to be less confident in that public forum environment. So when you get the opportunity to speak one-on-one, you really get different perspectives coming in about these things. That even if you've just held a workshop and, and had, they wouldn't speak up about. So you get these really fascinating insights. And, and for me, that's, that's something that I'd like to highlight more and more. And the results of the research are really around what, when you actually speak to communities about what's happening on the ground, it, it is quite a different message than what you would get in, in these kind of official sort of public spaces and conversations with the different service providers and operators. A key thing that we found is that even though there's all this money and funding going into trying to improve the, the water systems, the majority of people will drink rainwater because they still have a preference for that due to their the taste, the smell, they don't like the smell of the chlorine or the the salt water. And we heard from uh, Tina about, you know, even that just af- affecting the skin, you know, the having desal water all the time because it's still got that sort of salty aspect to it. So there's different acceptability of water and, and that's a key thing in the sustainable development goals. It's not just about clean and secure water it's about the acceptability of that water to people as well so traditionally people were drinking rain rainwater and they still do so so there's an obligation there to really look at 
how to make sure that the rainwater is safe as well and treatable. And that's not really being captured in, in the same way. Uh, in Aboriginal communities in in WA, they've also got huge challenges and in Northern Territory as well, huge challenges with the different chemicals and minerals that are in the groundwater as well. So they have all sorts of health impacts and it's actually really, really scary and sad to to hear about what's happening just from the water. They're starting to find all sorts of long-term issues that are emerging in much younger populations from uh, things like cadmium, uranium, all these things that are in the water that aren't aren't really getting filtered out at the moment. So every community is different, and I think that's where that community-based research is is really important. And we're trying to bring that together with the service providers to look at this sort of transformative approach that says we need to work together, we need to collaborate so that we can kind of um, address these intractable issues really. So what's the next stage, well, sort of moving on from that, those great principles and community engagement and the success you had with the water meters, what happens now? Well, we're actually working together with uh, a bunch of the service providers and, and communities across WA, Queensland, Northern Territory, in the hope that we can get a, a large project up that is going to start focusing much more on this cultural and traditional local knowledge about water to work that in with technology such as um, apps and online portal kind of interface type thing and bring in the two-way knowledge sharing and learning so that's something that's in the pipeline at the moment it's really exciting and there's also huge connections here with the pacific so i have done some work in the pacific on on ecosystem-based adaptation and also water and, and energy management in remote communities. Um, so these are these are issues that are translatable to to the Pacific as well. So we're looking to expand some of the, the work and connect the work between, particularly with the Torres Strait and the Pacific Islands. There's a lot of similarities there with the challenges they're facing. So there's absolutely no end of opportunities in this space. I'd love to see more and more researchers bringing their skills into looking at remote communities and water systems and sustainability, but it's it's an exciting area to be a part of and we're seeing lots of changes already happening. There seems to be quite an increasing appetite in terms of policy makers and decision makers for, you know, genuinely looking at, at goodwill to, to bringing some of these changes in. So I think it's very promising and a growing area and there'll probably be lots of exciting things coming out of it in the in the near future. And overcoming so many of these challenges, I mean, even within the Torres Strait and the variations between the islands and how some of them are quite mountainous and some are quite muddy, some are coral atolls, um, for, and, and looking at some of the solutions that have been, you know, as you mentioned, sort of pushed on these communities in some ways and trying to find the ones that actually work long term into the future. That's right. And I think, you, you know, you have to work locally. All, all the solutions need to be locally based in that sense. But I guess where universities and, and other service providers can really help bridge that gap is to help look at what works in different communities, find those similarities, those commonalities, and be able to share them. And what we'd like to do is actually start I guess uh, that kind of knowledge sharing platform as well. So these stories are shared amongst the communities and it empowers them to hear from each other. We took one of the tech officers from the Torres Strait and the water and wastewater manager over to Western Australia to a water forum there. 
with Indigenous communities last year. And it was it was really empowering to hear the different stories and, and be able to share their lessons from, you know, installing smart meters and doing different programs and, and what's going on in those different contexts. So lots of opportunity there to really support communities to take their own actions and to guide the service providers for what they need. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Gender Card today, Melissa, and telling us about your research and for bringing to us from the Torres Strait these wonderful voices from people that these decisions affect so vividly, so so crucially. Also, in a wider sense, bringing their voices that are so often ignored uh, in, to life in your research and bringing such wonderful solutions, hopefully, to these intractable problems. Yeah, great. And it's just been an absolute pleasure to be here and and share this. So thank you so much for having me. That was Griffith University's Dr. Melissa Jackson featuring in this episode of The Gender Card. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.